Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Well, although live updates from the front is what we all want right now, me included, and I'm preparing an episode and you'll get another one tomorrow, which is why I'm making these episodes daily right now, there is an equally important issue with all the things going on here that um, is there to kind of elaborate the economical situation and... um, and the whole philosophical mindset. You see, for one, the Russian government believes that the West is soft. And sure, there are stereotypes about uh, all sorts of cultures, and we in Eastern Europe, and especially Russians, have been basically praised for their inherent toughness. If I would have to kind of give out stat bonuses like in a video game or Dungeons and Dragons or something, then, then probably I would give Western Europe a bonus to wisdom. Asia would get a bonus to intellect. We in Eastern Europe would get a bonus to toughness. And uh, South America would, would definitely get a bonus to dexterity because of their football qualities. Americans, North Americans would get a bonus to charisma. I suppose Australians get strength then. Or Africans get strength. I think Africans get strength or something. But uh, Australians probably get the same charisma bonus. Just because of stereotypes, if you if you just follow these stupid stereotypes all over the place, because, you know, they exist. But um, Russians are to play on these stereotypes, you see? Because, well, what, 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 what could be considered a slightly racist comparison in the Western world is considered a natural part of the whole existence of everything inside Russia. For one, Russian President Putin is still sort of very kind of believing the fact that Westerners are weak. Now, we in Latvia are in a weird position. You see, we're culturally Western since we had been a part of Holy Roman Empire for a while here in Riga. We've been a part of the Swedish Empire and everything. And we always had German nobles ruling over us. So we kind of 
are way closer to the Western culture. However, since the Soviet era and since us being the Russian Empire, we're also, in the way, you know, tougher. And Putin thinks that, you know, the Europe will not survive through and that he can stop Europe from basically delivering weapons to Ukraine. However, I know that for one, no one in the Baltics or Poland is going to give up helping. And United States are not concerned with the European situation. They're going to help anyway, so that's a failed tactic. However, the important part is, as I have previously described in my episodes about the army, the fact that this toughness is not as much as a virtue as you can. Sure, we're, well, you know, in the 90s I grew up in a house which didn't have heating often, so we had our own, like, iron little, little iron stove, which we he used for heating and everything, and we're used to poor conditions. However, Putin overplays this, because, again, this reminded me of a Dan Carlin episode where he spoke about toughness as a virtue. But toughness can also be not a virtue, especially since you get to rely on it. If you wonder why all this army supplies have been stolen, why Russia currently does not have any sleeping bags, why they, you know, don't have good supplies, it's because of the toughness. See, the commanders who stole all this stuff, well, they thought, you know, just in case, ah, the soldiers are tough, they'll manage. But there's an upper limit to this. Just because you're tough and can survive bad conditions does not mean that bad conditions should be created on purpose. I recently uh, watched a YouTube channel about military education on the Russian side. And, uh, well, the things that I didn't know is that in the United States, at least, as far as this report went, the military training is to the point of breaking, but no further. You are not to humiliate the recruits. You are to show them some dominance and beat some discipline into them, but you don't go overboard with it. Eventually, they get treated with some respect. Meanwhile, in Russia, people just uh, switch it over, and it's a whole different scenario. In Russia, people don't get treated with respect. They're, ex they're expected to be tough. They're trained sometimes, you know, in doing pointless stuff and pointless punishments, way over the breaking point. And uh, as much as Full Metal Jacket is a nice movie, we saw there what happens when, when you do that, which is why this actually doesn't happen in the Western militaries. Still, this happened in Russia, though. But uh, all the situation is weird, because when we talk about the economy, we also have to talk about the mentality. See, talking about economy, and I'll be using Bloomberg's translation here, because the original Russian article, which I've also read, well, if someone translates it for me, it's easier to work. And you see, Russia might face a way longer and deeper recession than they try to portray See, currently Russia is expected to lose about 8% of their GDP, and I already mentioned their uh, whole personal payday loan levels in the previous episodes. But the current level is not a sign of sanctions not working. It's sanctions working really well, it's just that Russia is burning through their reserves to do everything. See, apparently the document that Bloomberg, me as well, interestingly enough, to sources I suppose, uh, that, that we got our hands on, as a result of months of work by officials and experts trying to assess the true impact of Russia's economic isolation due to the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, it paints the real picture that's actually been shown to the people responsible for the economical situation in Russia. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't portray as good a picture as the officials usually do in their public pronouncements. That's the thing. There are three scenarios. 
Two of the three scenarios in the report show the contraction accelerating next year, with the Russian economy returning to the pre-war level only at the end of the decade or later. The inertial one, which is the middle one, sees the economy bottoming out next year at 8.3% below the 2021 level, while the most extreme scenario puts uh, the low on 2024 and 11.9 under last year's level. And mind you, this is not just Russia doing nothing. This is not the economy predictions which would happen if Russia wouldn't do anything. This is why we got the contraction of 20%, of 15%, all that stuff. This is the economical predictions of Russia with everything Russia can do to stop them. The report details how Russia now faces a blockade that has, quote, affected practically all forms of transport, further curbing off economy. Technological and financial curbs add to the pressure. The report estimates that as many as 200,000 IT specialists may leave the country by 2025. That's uh, the first official forecast of the massive brain drainage that are fitting right now. Publicly, the Russian officials, of course, state that sanctions have been less than feared, Contraction possibly being less than 3% and everything, even less than 2023. But that's clearly not going to be not going to be true impact of this. And this document calls for a massive amount of measures, even more than they do now, to support the economy and further ease the impact of restrictions in order to get the economy recovering to pre-war levels in 2024 and starting to grow after that. But the steps include many of the same measures to stimulate investment, that the government has touted over the last decade when the growth basically was stagnating already. This is all crazy. And, um, well, when in Vladivostok Economy Forum, Economy Minister Maxim Reshetnikov was asked about this, he called the forecasts, quote, analytical estimates that we use to calculate what would happen if we don't resist, don't do anything. Which is a lie. This is a clear lie. Over the next year or two, the report warns of reduced production volumes and range of export-oriented sectors, from oil and gas to metals, chemicals, wood products. Meanwhile, by the way, at the same time, EU and uh, America are importing more and more Russian aluminium and nickel. Now, I thought that would be a, that, would, that was a bad thing because it gives more money to Russia. However, if you think about it from the other side, one, tanks and guns are not built from money; they're built from metals. And secondly. Yeah, sure, Russia gets some money. What will, they, what will they buy for it? They're in a total import lockdown. They can't buy anything with the currency, which is why the Russian ruble is so strong, which further hurts, hurts their exports. Actually buying nickel and aluminum from Russia right now actually hurts them way more. And then there's oil, oil sector hit, which, by the way, you know, Europe uh, was about 50% of Russia's oil and gas, and two-thirds of that are going to go away. And they're, but by the way, they're cutting everything themselves. Now, on sectoral basis, interestingly enough, the whole report details the whole width of the hit from sanctions. Agriculture, fully 99% of poultry production and 30% of dairy cattle output depends on imports. Seeds for staples like sugar beets and potatoes are also mostly brought in from outside the country, as are fish feeds and amino acids. Aviation. 95% of passenger volume is carried on foreign-made planes, and the lack of access to imported spare parts could lead the fleet to shrink as they go out of service. Machine building. 
Only 30% of machine tools are Russian-made, and local industry does not have the capacity to cover rising demand. Pharmaceuticals. About 80% of Russia's domestic production relies on imported raw materials. Transport. EU restrictions have tripled costs for road shipments. Communications and IT. Restrictions on SIM cards could leave Russia short of them by 2025, while its telecommunications sector may fall five years behind world leaders in 2022. That's this year. Why is this important? Well, because there's also an interesting court case that happened on September the 6th. This ties together, don't worry. On September the 6th, the Moscow Regional Court sentenced two Kaliningrad doctors, Yelena Belaya and Yelena Suskevich, to 9.5 and 9 years in prison, respectively. The women were charged with deliberately killing a premature baby to keep their hospital's official infant mortality rate low. They were originally acquitted, acquitted by a jury in their home region back in 2020. But when the Russian Attorney General's office took issue with the verdict, the case was transferred to Moscow, where the doctors were found guilty. And now, this might not sound not seem significant, but um, this ruling will be disastrous for the quality of Russian healthcare, which is another economical sector. See, the story was that on November the 6th, 2018, in Kaliningrad's maternity hospital number 4, an infant just died just hours after being born. The 1714 gram, which is 1.6 pounds, baby was the son of the 27-year-old Zamiranov Ahmedova, very hard, the citizen of Uzbekistan who was 24 weeks into her pregnancy when she gave birth. The baby was transferred to the NICU immediately after birth, and a team of medical workers was soon, though not immediately, called in from the regional peritoneal center. One of these workers was an anesthesiologist, resuscitation specialist, Yelena Suskevich. According to Suskevich, the baby showed symptoms of shock and had low blood pressure, a low body temperature and severe anemia. She prescribed him the appropriate medications according to protocol and oversaw his treatment, she said. But the infant's condition only worsened. Six and a half hours after being born, he died. Later that month, the Russian Investigative Committee appointed a criminal case against Yelena Belaya, the maternity hospital's acting head physician, for allegedly abusing her power. One year later, they escalated the charges, accusing Belaya of organizing the baby's murder and Sushkevich of carrying out her instructions. Investigators alleged that Belaya, seeing that the baby would likely die soon and not wanting to bring down the hospital's official infant mortality rate, decided to kill the baby herself and change the birth record to make it appear as though he had died in the womb. As an additional motive, they cited her alleged desire to preserve hospital resources and medications. They claimed Belaya instructed Suskevich to give the baby a fatal dose of magnesium sulfate and that Suskevich complied, ultimately stopping the baby's heart. The prosecution's key witness was Tatyana Kosereva, the head of the hospital's neonatal ward, who claimed to have heard Belaya admonishing doctors for trying to resuscitate the baby, when he could no longer had any chance of survival. According to Kosereva, Belaya demanded that the birth record be edited and that the baby's mother, Ahmedova, be told the baby was stillborn. The birth record, which was seized by investigators, does indeed have inf- in- intranatal fetal death written in the entry for Ahmedova's baby, and obstetrician ge- gynecologist Irina Shirokaya claimed to have amended the document under pressure from Belaya, who she threatened to fire her. But even for jurors willing to believe investigators' claims about Belaya's alleged motives, though the head physician has denied benefiting from the boy's death in any way, Suskovich's alleged participation immediately raised questions in Kaliningrad where she had long enjoyed a shining reputation. First of all, Suskevich wasn't Belaya's subordinate, so Belaya didn't have the power to give her orders. 
Secondly, the magnesium sulfate detail did not appear until a second expert examination found elevated magnesium levels in the baby's body, months after his death. Not only did the first examination did not find heightened magnesium levels, it also found that the baby was non-viable due to immaturity of his organs and tissue. Suskovich believes the chemist who performed the second analysis made a mistake by using adult indicators to address newborn baby. Now, after the case was open, the doctors were put under house arrest. Meanwhile, their colleagues and former patients launched a campaign in their support. And this is all crazy. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. See. This is interesting because this case has caused a massive, massive uproar and everything happening there. Because everything here is going weird. Going weird. Medical profession is not prestigious in Russia. Medical profession is already suffering. And it's rare for doctors to be charged with intentionally killing a patient by interfering with treatment in Russia. Outside of the Kaliningrad case, there are only two examples of this. However, you know, all the people out there who do this, it's kind of weird. Because mul- multiple Russian neon- neonatologists have left the field as a result of the Kalinga case. Members of Russia's neon- neonatologist society warned that the case will have serious consequences for Russian medicine as a whole. Quote, Every year, the number of medical criminal trials goes up. Working as a doctor is becoming downright scary. It's become easier to love the medical profession altogether than try to save the lives of people who are in critical condition. Because if you fail for reasons that are out of your control, you'll be interrogated by investigators who have no medical knowledge. When that's the approach they take with doctors, the quality of Russian healthcare will not improve. And the personal shortage, which is massive, including the Kalinga region, it'll just, it'll just get worse. That's the thing. Now, this applies to all medical professions, because this is also no surprise to me, since if you remember on my episode about the Russian army preparation and everything, remember that Russian Air Force pilots get sued if their planes crash. And this is everywhere. Because, you know, you live according to the law, and the nomenclature, the higher-ups, the Putin's cronies, live by the laws they set themselves. Fun, isn't it? Besides the economical sanctions... The whole oppressive political system, just like any oppressive political system, really destroys itself from within. The collapse of Russia isn't there because Ukraine is going to magically, wondrously go in and, and conquer Russia. No, 
It's because of all these things of economy and their own laws. Their levels of corruption are so insane that they can't uphold the country. I, I was gotten, um, I was asked questions about the situation in Twitter again. But I'm, by the way, speaking at uh, 3 p.m. today in my report. 3 p.m. my time is going to be 8 a.m. for Americans, East Coast time. But, um, yeah, their laws and their economies and shambles and everything. They're doing everything they can to destroy a country because many people ask, how did this country even run? And how did the Soviet Union used to run? Well, it didn't. It collapsed. Which is why I'm so short about this. Things like these. And, and the situation, for example, that recently was reported that um, in Lake Baikal... They had a lot of issues with pollution, and then they poured in about three, three billion rubles for the whole situation to be fixed. Nothing changed because all the money was stolen. Corruption is literally eating through the country, and corruption needs to be hidden by totalitarian laws, and that's what happened. And the final blow of all the situation is what they're going to be taught in schools. See, after all, it's back to school season. And for Russian students, this semester will be a bit different from previous ones. As part of the government's mission to protect Russian society from destructive informational and psychological influence, the country's education ministry has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop a curriculum for the new weekly class called Conversations About What's Important. Students in grades 1 through 4 will be taught about patriotism and love for Russia, while students in the 5th grade and above will be fed pro-Kremlin narratives about Russia's war against, Ukra uh, against Ukraine. I'm using Medusa here because they've summarized this, and it's interesting. Russia's education ministry just published these materials, so it's kind of crazy. The ministry's site includes materials for lessons scheduled until end of November. They hadn't had any time to develop them longer. I think they'll stop as well. The curriculum reportedly cost the government 22 million rubles, about $361,000 to develop. And by the way, the students that uh, post on Twitter and TikTok and everywhere, they're already ignoring this because it's just too much cringe. But hey, when have we shied away from cringe? The classes designed for first and second graders are aimed at instilling in them a love for Russia's nature, which the lesson plan refers to as one manifestation of love for one's fatherland. Students will look at Russian landscapes, hear recordings of sounds from nature, and listen to patriotic songs. The lesson plan suggests having students listen to the Soviet song, Where Does the Motherland Begin? Now, that's all fun and good. I mean, nature and love of your society and patriotism. Patriotism is good. Then... Third and fourth graders, lessons will be dedicated to fostering the idea of effective love for the motherland. Mm. One of their assignments will be to explain the meaning of the saying, to love the motherland is to serve the motherland. The curriculum suggests teachers write two definitions for the word serve on the board. Number one, performing one's military duties, participating in military service. And two, working for the good of something or someone. Third grade, and we're getting taught that um, military is necessary and, you know, you should all go die in the Ukraine war. In fifth graders' classes, teachers will begin speaking directly about the special military operation, which is, you know, the war against Ukraine. Proposed, proposed class activities include an assignment intended to help students solve problematic situations based on the model of the special military operation. In addition to learning about the reasons of the operation, preteens will study the heroes and patriots of the Russian military. And this includes great stuff like the goals of the special military operation include protecting the people of the Donbass who have suffered abuse and oppression at the hands of the Kiev regime, disarming Ukraine and preventing NATO from putting military bases in Ukrainian territory. The, amount of, uh, the immense amount of military and other aid the collective West has given to Ukrainian authorities is prolonging the hostilities and raising the death toll of the operation. It is one of the lesson scripts. Of course, 
really. If someone tells you this war is because of uh, NATO bases, then Avatnik doesn't matter anymore. We know it isn't true because Gherkin and everyone else from the pro-war side always state that it is not about that at all. The stated goals of the 8th and 9th graders lesson on the special military operation include teaching students that the residents of the DNR, Donetsk People's Republic and LNR, Luhansk People's Republic, are Russians, so it's important that they return to Russia and that Russian soldiers are heroes. Students in the 10th and 11th grades, by the way, Russia only has 11 grades, not 12, so just so you know, will be tasked with comparing various signs and photographs from Russian history. For the period 2000 to 2020, the curriculum's creators selected a picture of a Russian tank convoy and a picture of a woman crying next to a stand showing pictures of children who were killed during the terrorist attack in Beslan. At the end of the lesson for upperclassmen, teachers are told to explain what it means to be a patriot and to love one's motherland. Quote, you can't be a patriot if all you do is repeat slogans. People who are truly patriotic and are willing to defend their motherland with arms in hand. But that's not the only way to express one's patriotism. Patriotism is exhibited in small acts. Therefore, each and every one of us who is prepared for, to act for the benefit of his country or his fatherland is a patriot. I really like how they're twisting the patriotic things here. But uh, one thing that is also kind of weird is that um, Russia... Well, see, if this would happen in the United States... I'll be okay. I'll probably probably have some classes about patriotism or something. But um, it's literally illegal by Russian constitution. It's illegal by Russian constitution to bring politics, party politics, and any ideology into the classroom. Everything should be neutral. This whole thing. Well, patriotism is good. I you know I, I'm I, I like supporting you know your own country. I love Lafayette. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Now, being an ultra-nationalist, that's a problem, but being a patriot, no, that's okay in my eyes. Because, you know, I like my country. But, um, this is obviously not patriotism. This is, please, once you finish school, join the army so that you can be sent to the front. And together with the situation that their healthcare is dampening and everything's going badly, and with the situation that I mentioned previously that, um, the mass increase in payday loans and everything getting more expensive, you know, this will end up disastrous. This really is the end of an era. I really wanted to do this more Econ economy fo economy fo focused episode because, see, to put this in context, all of this is in shambles in Russia. And then, like I mentioned in yesterday's episode, I find out that they're even run out of ammunition. The Soviets had a similar problems. We could send a guy into space, but when we had the largest army, we couldn't provide for the everyday citizens. But at least we had the largest army and it was functioning. Well, us. Russians, basically. But um, right now, right now it seems that even this has fallen. I don't know how they're going to go forward. They're relying on the Russian toughness, but also can only do so much. Anyways, tomorrow we'll be back with more frontline updates. I have to prepare for an interview, which is going to happen in four hours. And uh, I wanted to say that I've gotten some messages in Patreon. Please, if you're a patron, do set up your monthly limits. Because due to how my show started, I charge per episode. I charge for about four to five episodes per month. And if you're pressing the donate button, set up your monthly limit so that I don't charge you more than you're willing to spend per month. There are monthly limits because if I would now switch to a per month system, that would, you know, completely blow up. I started per episode because I thought I would be releasing maybe fewer episodes per month. And there might be some months when I didn't release a historical episode. So I didn't want to charge you for that. Turned out that I exploded, grew way more popular than I had thought. 
so, you know, but if I would switch the systems now, I would lose all your patrons and probably wouldn't be able to make the show. So, please, if you are a patron of the show, so that there won't be any surprises, remember that my Patreon is per episode, so I charge for four to five episodes per month, depending on the month. And please, if you want to, you know, limit the amount that you support the show with per month, go into your settings and set up a monthly limit. I do not want to feel like I've cheated all of you. Secondly, uh, this whole situation is a bit weird now because a lot of work, but I have a bunch of Russian souvenirs. I've, I've acquired a ton of Russian metal ruble coins, which I'm going to send all of you. As soon as I get the time to do that, that's probably going to be early next week. I uh, thank you to everyone who sent me their address in Patreon. I'm gonna relook. I'm gonna look through all of that. Let's hope that the postal system works. Then it did during COVID. And of course, if you want to do a one-time donation for the show, or you want to pinch in for the winter clothes for Ukraine, which we're gonna deliver them in September, because probably not gonna gather enough for the drone, but winter clothing and humanitarian aid will be very useful. We have about two thousand five hundred dollars reserved just for that. If you want to pinch in for that, uh, or just stay at the show, then go to easternborder.lv, click the donate button. Uh, some people also have basically uh, asked me how to, how can they send me shipping money so that they can have, you know, would balance out the shipping costs that will go to the United States and Canada. I'm very thankful for that, but that's totally not mandatory. You can do that also via the Eastern Border Donate page. Just drop me an email or something. We'll continue our work. Like I said, currently there's a lot of things that I want to talk about. There's also news from the front. Uh, more news from the front tomorrow because updates come in. And currently, as far as I know, my sources are involved in direct combat, so... Can't really ask them to update this early. And uh, hey, if you're on Twitter and you manage to hear this in the first four hours after this releases, then uh, go to my report on Twitter. I'm going to be live there talking about the whole Latvia situation once again, about our whole alignment of victory and everything. But that's it for today. Tomorrow we're going to have a big news update from the front. I just really wanted to make this this economy episode. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.